Hey, hope everyone's doing okay. Uh, thank you again for uh, watching us on YouTube or Facebook or the website or, or however you may be watching us this weekend. Um, hope everyone this week got to go uh, to a restaurant. Um, it sounds like that wouldn't be that big of a deal, but a lot of the restaurants in Murfreesboro opened up recently, and, and uh, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, Josh and I, Brooker and I went out and um, got a pizza, and we went and sat in a restaurant, and it was really, really cool, and it's amazing the things you take for granted, the small things, but it was really nice to go out and support a local business and, and uh, get some pizza and eat with someone. It was really, really nice. So again, glad you guys are here. Uh, before I forget, something I wanted to say to you guys is this coming Monday, uh, that should be coming up, I'm, I don't know the date right now, but the Monday that is coming up, we're gonna start doing our 24-hour prayer chain again. So we'll have it limited to 10 people. You can come into the sanctuary, pray, and we're gonna slowly start to work back into uh, some normalcy, which is really, really nice. Still gonna take some time. We don't know when we're gonna open the church back up fully, but kind of incrementally as we can and as we're listening to our government, uh, start doing a little bit more and more and start to work our way up. So please sign up for that. Um, there'll be a link online. There's a link on my Facebook right now uh, where you can sign up and come in and do some prayer. If you're new, um, we have been working through a book of the Bible called Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. Again, I say this every week. I would argue it's probably the most important book of the Bible. And uh, we're getting through it. We're about a third through it, not quite a third. We finished up with chapter eight, did the first eight verses of chapter nine last week, and what we talked about was this. We asked ourselves, do we live a life of praise? Now, we defined praise as making something known. So, right, we all praise something. It's just a question of what do we praise? A lot of people praise sports, and they make that known, right, in their social media and the shirts and clothes that they wear and what they talk about all the time and what they spend their money on, they praise sports. And there's other things. All of us have something like that. But we asked last week, as Christians, do we praise God? Do we make God known in how we speak and how we live and how we treat other people and how we spend our time and our energy and our finances? Do we praise God? This week, um, we're going to do the rest of chapter 9, and we got, we got quite a bit of ground to cover today, so I'm going to make sure I jump into it kind of quickly here in a minute. But we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about what it means to be a shepherd because at the end of chapter nine, Jesus looks out over this crowd of people and he says, this crowd of people are like a lot of sheep that don't have a shepherd. They don't have any leadership, any vision, right? Any direction. So we're gonna ask ourselves, are we willing to be shepherds? Are we willing to buy into the vision and plan of the shepherd, right? And help lead other people into a relationship with the shepherd, right? So it's not just about the shepherd, it's about us being shepherds as well. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. So let me make an apology on the front end too. If you're watching this and you are not a believer, and we have a lot of people that aren't believers that, that periodically watch and, and watch a little bit more than we, we sometimes even, even think about. If you're watching this and you're not a believer, uh, please just give me some grace today because I'm going to talk a little bit more insider lingo right? I'm going to be focused a little bit more on people who are already Christians, but if you're watching this and you're not a, not a believer, there's still a lot of applicable information. So, but I wanted to go ahead and get that out on the front end. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get into the Word. If you are watching, you should have notes on the app. If you have the Experience Community app, we have notes on our website at experiencecc.com. Uh, the more important things I'm going to say will be highlighted at the bottom while I'm teaching. And so, and I'll be reading straight from the Word today from Matthew 9, and so we should have everything in pretty good shape, and uh, you should be able to follow along pretty easily. So let me pray. Let's jump into the Word today, and um, we'll see what happens, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, God. Um, Lord, thank you that, that things are kind of starting to get a little bit more back to normal. Lord, thank you, God, that we can go out to different places, that things are starting to open up, that local businesses are starting to open up. God, we thank you for that. Lord, thank you for the good weather we've had recently, Lord, and thank you just, just for keeping us strong and healthy and safe, God. Lord, we pray for the other churches in our community as we all try to figure out what's next. Uh, we pray for our congregations. We pray for the great nonprofits in our community. We pray for our local, state, and federal governments, God, that you give them wisdom, Lord, 
And um, we just pray, God, that through everything we study today, Lord, that we can get closer to you, that skeptics can maybe have some answers to some of the questions they may have, God, and that those of us that are already believers, that we can grow deeper in our relationship with you, Lord. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and it's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're starting in verse nine of chapter nine of the book of Matthew, okay? All right, I'm gonna read a little bit and I'll go back and break it down. Matthew writes, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so if you have been with us the last couple of weeks, Jesus has a really uh, good knack of breaking social taboos right? He didn't do everything that was very sociably acceptable. We've seen a lot. We've seen him heal a woman by touching her. Religious leaders wouldn't have touched women at this time. We see Jesus go into heavily non-Jewish areas. People wouldn't have done that. We see him doing a lot of things that would have been societally unacceptable, right? Not accepted in society. There you go. So we've read about a lot of these things, and we're going to continue to see Jesus break social taboos. One of those is with the guy that wrote this book of the Bible that we're reading today, Matthew. Now, Matthew's job was a tax collector. He was a Jew, but he officially worked for the Roman Empire. And what would happen is Romans would come into an area, they would conquer an area, they would find locals or natives, they would employ them to take taxes from their own people. Now, needless to say, the Jewish people hated their own people that were now working for this Roman government and taking their money. So in other words, Matthew was the lowest of the low. There probably wouldn't have been more, any more despised people than people like Matthew that wrote this book of the Bible. So not only does Jesus hang out with this guy, he hangs out at his house with a bunch of other tax collectors and, Matthew writes, sinners. So Jesus takes it even up another notch. He hangs out not just with one tax collector. He goes to his house and hangs out with a bunch of them. Now, in Jesus's time, to go to someone's house and to eat with them was the most socially intimate thing you can do. It it, kind of still is today. And so what happened was this. The Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, right, and and kind of the bad guys of of the book of Matthew, the Pharisees find out that Jesus is eating with this group of social outcasts, and they didn't go to Jesus. They went to Jesus's disciples and said, why does he eat with these kind of people? Now, why wouldn't they have just gone straight to Jesus and asked? So the educated Pharisees, these were very educated people, what they were trying to do with their slander and with their gossip was they were trying to divide Jesus's disciples. They were trying to pit Jesus's disciples against Jesus. So they didn't go right to the source. They went to other people. And guys, isn't this what all people who slander and gossip do, right? They don't go directly to the person that has upset them. They go around to all these other people and they stir up divisiveness. Now, Jesus gets wind of this, right? Whether we knew from their thoughts or whether he just overheard them speaking, whatever the case may be, Jesus gets wind that there is this talk behind his back and he met this divisive talk with righteous anger. It made him mad and it should. So Jesus sarcastically tells the religious leaders, there's a lot of sarcasm with Jesus in the book of Matthew. Jesus sarcastically looks at them and he says, I came for those who are sick and sinful. I did not come for the ones that are healthy and good like you, right? And he's saying that sarcastically. He knew, Jesus knew that there was no such thing as a healthy person apart from God. 
Jesus knew that all of us, without God's help, are awful, we're terrible, we're sick, we're sinful. So Jesus was, was kind of pointing his sarcasm at the idea that anyone is good apart from God, because they're not. And so who did Jesus really come to help? Jesus wanted to help everybody. It says in the Bible, it's not his will that any go to hell, right? He wanted to save everybody. But the ones that receive salvation are the ones that acknowledge that they are broken. They're the ones that acknowledge that they're sick. They realize that they're lost. So what does that mean for us? It means for us that humility is the linchpin. The linchpin for what? The linchpin for everything. Humility, without true humility, without true self-awareness, we fail to see that we are all depraved people. And when we, listen, when we fail to see that we're depraved, we reject, we deny salvation because we don't think we need to be saved, right? We're already good. And Jesus says, well, I didn't come for you people that think you're already good. I came for the people that realize that they need some help. That's what he said to them. So Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, you need to go out and learn what this statement means. He says that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word sacrifice right there means religious practice. And the word mercy there means the heart of why we do things. Now, we need to be careful with this because not all religious practice is bad. It's good to go to church. It's good to take communion. It's good to serve. There's nothing wrong with those things. But Jesus requires that our heart be good. So just going to church and just taking communion and just serving doesn't save you. It's a heart condition. So Jesus says, I want you to be merciful, which means I want your heart to be in the right place. I don't want you to just do this thing. I want you to do it because you love me. I want your heart to be in the right position. That's what he meant, that God wants mercy, not just sacrifice. Okay, next part. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch will pull away from the garment and makes the tear worse. No one puts a new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, what we come into here is a couple of what, what the Bible calls mini parables, or what theologians call mini parables, but I'll explain that here in a second. The first thing we see is this, is that we can easily become legalistic. So John the Baptist's followers, and this is at a time when John the Baptist, and if you don't know who he is, he was kind of the, the precursor to Jesus, right? He came and kind of set the stage for Jesus. John was in jail at this time. And so John's followers come to Jesus and they say, hey, listen, we do a lot of fasting, which means uh, denying different pleasures in order to get closer to God, right? Either denying food or some kind of comfort or something like that. We do this a lot. The religious leaders do this a lot. Jesus, why don't your followers fast more often? What had happened was this. The religious leaders and even John's disciples, they started to make fasting more of a regiment than it was a conviction, so it was less of a heart issue and more of a religious thing to do, fasting, okay? So all Christians can easily fall into this kind of legalism. What that means is, is we can go to church and not be doing it for the right reasons. We can even give money and serve, but not have a proper heart behind it. So we always have to go back to the mercy in verse 13. More mercy than sacrifice. Is it good to fast? Of course it's good to fast. But if your heart's not in the right place, you have completely missed the point with fasting. So Jesus says, there will be a time for my disciples to fast, but right now they're with me. So Jesus says, it's not the appropriate time. There's going to come a time, but it's not right now. 
So in verse 15, Jesus foreshadows his death. He basically says, there's gonna be a time when they're not gonna have me around in physical form and they're gonna need to fast a little bit. It's gonna be hard times and they're gonna have to deny some things in order to get closer to me to make it during those times. So Jesus says, hold on, John's disciples. There's gonna come a time where my people are going to fast as well, but it's not right now. The reason they weren't fasting right then is because Jesus was building something new. And that's where these little mini parables come in. See, Jesus wanted his followers to pay close attention, right? Look at what I'm doing. Because what Jesus was doing is, is he was ushering in a new era, right? Of how humanity and God were going to connect and communicate with each other. So Jesus starts off with kind of these little mini parables, and then later we'll get into, he has longer parables, right? Kind of shares these little stories that have a meaning behind them. So he talks about when you blend together fabric, right? You have to pre-shrink the, the fabric and put it on the old fabric, or it'll make the whole worse. If you make new wine, you have to put it into a new wineskin, or it will make it burst. What he was talking about is this new thing that he was developing was the church, his people, that he was creating a new way, that it wasn't going to be just Jesus walking around telling everyone about the kingdom of God. He was building a group of people who were gonna go out into the entire world. It was a new thing. And this group of people was gonna go to the entire world and share the message of Jesus Christ and of salvation, okay? So let's get back to miracles though, okay? He's gonna get back to working. As he was telling them these things, Suddenly, one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and they followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her, and he said, have courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd lamenting loudly. He said, leave, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then the news of this spread throughout that whole area. So we get back to the trenches. We get back to Jesus going amongst the crowds, amongst the people, and he's healing, and he's ministering, and he's delivering, okay? So one of the religious leaders comes up to Jesus, and I just said a couple of minutes ago that the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the religious leaders, for the most part were bad, right? They didn't like Jesus. They're the ones that had him eventually crucified. But not all of the religious leaders were bad. And we see one of them right here uh, come up to Jesus and has tremendous faith. And it says, he knelt down in front of Jesus and said, my daughter has just died. If you can come in contact with her, she'll live. That is tremendous faith. Now listen, we don't know what this leader's attitude towards Jesus was before his daughter got sick. But what we see in this, maybe it was great towards Jesus. Or maybe he was hostile towards Jesus. But listen to this. In desperate times, it tends to break down even the harshest skeptics. So whatever this man's heart was before, at this point he was desperate for his daughter to live. So he finds Jesus, right? He seeks Jesus out. So Jesus is on his way to, he, to, to not just heal, to raise a little girl from the dead, which would be a first in the Bible, right? The raising of the dead. So he's on his way to a first, and then another first takes place. As he's on his way to the leader's home to, to raise this little girl from the dead, this woman walks up and she has had an issue with bleeding for 12 years. Now, if anyone would have touched her, a religious leader, it would have made them ceremonially unclean, religiously unclean, okay? So this woman is trying to be discreet. She doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. She doesn't want to put Jesus on the spot. I pretty much think by this time she was already a social outcast, so I don't think she cared that much about herself. But she sneaks up behind Jesus and touches the, the, the end of his robe. 
So here's what Jesus is doing. We keep talking about social taboos. Touching this woman would have been a social taboo for Jesus, and touching a dead person would have been a social taboo for Jesus. So Jesus is going on with his, his record of breaking social taboos. This woman, though, I do not think she cared about social norms. She was over it. She'd been sick for 12 years, and she was willing to risk it all just to touch Jesus' clothes and the hope of being healed. And so she gets up there, she touches the clothes. Jesus stops. I don't think he necessarily felt it physically, but I think Jesus knew all. He turned around, he saw her there, and he says, your faith has made you well, right? So here's what's important. It wasn't just that this person touched Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus's touch that healed her. It was also his word that healed her. And because she had faith, she could accept the touch and she could accept the word. There is a whole lot of theological implications in this story. Here's what it is. We need to pursue Jesus. We need to let Jesus touch us. And then we need to listen to his word. There it is. Look at that. All of that happens with this woman. Pursuing him, touching him, listening to him. That's it. That's what we're supposed to do with Jesus. And we see it in this instance, and that is what saved this woman, physically and spiritually. So he keeps on walking, right? He gets to this religious leader's home, and as he got to the leader's home, he saw the, the hired flute players. Back then, whenever they would have funerals, they would hire a band, basically, to play different musical instruments, flutes in this case, and they would all lament and cry, right? So he walks up, he sees the flute players, he sees the friends and the family who are crying because a little girl has died. And he tells them, hey, you guys can go about your business. She's just sleeping. She's not dead. And it says at that point, they laughed at Jesus. And then Jesus didn't give them an option. It said he got rid of the crowds, right? All right, leave. See, Jesus wasn't interested in entertaining the crowds. Jesus was interested in healing and raising this little girl. So once the crowd was gone, he raises this little girl from the dead. And of course, the news of this incident, because now we've reached a whole nother level, the news of this incident of raising the dead spread like wildfire in the land. Okay, next part. So as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. So what was happening is this is the more miracles that Jesus performed, the more notoriety came to him and the more notoriety brought more opposition. So raising a religious leader's daughter from the dead, word got out pretty quick. And then we have the healing of this blind men, these two blind men, almost immediately after that. Now, this is more of the same. We've already seen this kind of stuff, right? Jesus healing people who have different kind of illnesses. But this particular one fulfilled the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. It, it talks about the healing of the blind like this. And this healing drew more glory to God, and it drew more attention to Jesus. Now, I know that sounds like a good thing, and it, and it is, but Jesus was trying to focus his attention on the disciples, and that's why he tells these blind men, hey, don't go tell everyone about this, because Jesus needed to focus his energy on his disciples. What's ironic, though, is this. <laughs> Look at this. It is two blind men that recognize that Jesus is the Savior. Their physical eyes were broken, but their spiritual eyes were very, very healthy. So they recognize Jesus as the son of David. That's a prophetic statement. Everyone knew, the Jews knew, that the, that the Messiah, the Savior, would come through the bloodline of David. So people would call Jesus the son of David. And so these two blind men that couldn't see with their eyes, but they could see with their souls, and they said, that's the Savior. That is the son of David. 
So it was their faith. That was the key to Jesus's ability and Jesus's willingness to heal them. Because it is not by physical faith that we are saved and healed. It is by spiritual faith, right? It's not by seeing. It is by believing that we are saved. And these blind men had that. So again, their eyes were broken, but obviously their mouths were in pretty good shape. After Jesus said, hey, don't go talk about this, it says they told everyone. Now, I don't think Jesus was necessarily upset or mad about that. I think Jesus knew that that was going to happen, but he was doing his best to kind of keep the crowds at a minimum so he could disciple his disciples. Jesus was not afraid of the opposition. He was not afraid of the religious leaders. He was not afraid about all the heat that he was going to take. He just knew that he needed to focus on his disciples, but these guys went out and told everyone, okay? Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So we have already seen Jesus deal with demonically possessed people. Now we see it again. So shortly after healing the, the two blind men, a demon-possessed man that was unable to speak was brought to Jesus because people wanted this demonically possessed man to be delivered of his demons. So again, similar to the two demoniacs in chapter 8, we see that demonic possession can physically affect people. This man could not speak. The other men from chapter 8 were violent, so violent that people wouldn't cross their paths. So we see that demonic influence can make people act a certain way, physically change how they act. We also see that when Jesus casts demons out, it's not like the movies, right? There's not, you know, black goo that shoots out of people's mouths or heads spinning or anything like that. It's by a simple word and Jesus casts demons out and it happens again right here. So this is something that, that, that is kind of interesting that comes up with this demonic possession story. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that a house divided cannot stand. So when the religious leaders find out that Jesus casted out demons, they said, well, he is using the power of the devil to cast the devil out. And in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus says, well, a house divided doesn't work, right? That doesn't make any sense. What he's saying is, logically, if I'm using the devil to cast out demons, why would Satan want to cast out his own demons? That doesn't make any sense. There's no logic in that. So here's what we see at this point in the book of Matthew. Is Christianity, yes, is about faith, and it is about the supernatural. Of course, right? We're talking about things beyond our understanding, beyond this world. There is a lot of that about Christianity. There is also an extremely practical side of Christianity, that the things that this book teaches make sense on the most practical level. When the book of Proverbs says that the debtor is slave to the lender, that's pretty practical advice. Don't get into massive amounts of debt, as a lot of people have done, and, and we're seeing kind of the ramifications of that. When it says in Ephesians 5 that women respect your husbands, men love your, your wives like Christ loves the church, that's very practical information that helps you have a better marriage. All throughout the Bible, we have extremely practical life lessons. So in this, Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 12, later, a house divided cannot stand. That just makes sense. That if there are two competing visions within one house, everything's going to fall apart. Very simple, logical stuff. So there is the supernatural part of the Christian faith, and there is a very logical, balanced, practical side of the word of God and of just being a Christian. Go back and research C.S. Lewis's conversion. If you go back and read Mere Christianity and most of the works by C.S. Lewis, it was the logical side of the Bible that actually turned C.S. Lewis to Christianity. It made the most sense. And there's a slew of theologians and scientists and a lot of other authors that came to the faith for the exact same reason. It was the logic of the Bible, not the supernatural, which came eventually too, but it was mostly the logical side of it, okay? 
Last part, and here is where I really wanna do a lot of, of emphasis, right? On this last part, because this is where we really need to hang out. And this is where it's a lot of kind of insider talk. And now if you're watching this and you're not a believer, there's a lot of good information in this, but this is where I really wanna challenge people who claim to be Christians, okay? In this last section, here we go. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. This is important right here, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest. This is where we need to spend some time, okay? Jesus went from town to town, as Matthew writes, teaching, preaching, healing. Matthew writes that when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion. That doesn't mean he just felt sorry for them. When Jesus would walk into an area, he would see the massive amounts of people that were broken, they were broken physically, they were broken mentally, and they were broken, all of them, spiritually. When he would see these crowds, that they were distressed, that they were dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. This word compassion, if you were to break this down, this means like a gut-wrenching pain in his stomach. Jesus would see the people and it would make him sick to his stomach how broken they had become, how off track they had become. He loved them. So what we learn at the end of this chapter is this. God is not some distant cosmic force. He's not some kind of ambiguous cloud in the sky. He's not something on another planet far, far away. God is a personal father. God loves us like his children. And when we're broken, when we're distressed, when we're dejected, it makes him sick to his stomach. He doesn't like that. So we see that God is a personal, deep, intimate, loving God. It's very important. He also says the people are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what does that mean, right? Most of us have not been around shepherds, right? Most of us have not been in huge pastures where there's sheep and a guy with the staff, you know, leading them and guiding them and directing them. We haven't been around that. So what does it mean to be a good shepherd? Well, a good shepherd does a couple of different things. A good shepherd feeds his sheep, comforts them, heals them, takes care of them when they're hurt, guides them, and protects them from evil outside forces. Jesus saw that it should have been the religious leaders who were shepherding the people, but they had failed. They had become selfish. They had become, they had gotten drawn to selfish ambition and what they wanted and how they could live comfort in comfort. And they had neglected the, the flock, the sheep, the people. So what Jesus was going to do is he was going to create a new kind of shepherd, right? Not based on religion, but people that have a relationship with him. Now listen, ultimately Jesus is the shepherd, right? Ultimately he is our shepherd. We are to follow Jesus. Ultimately he is our shepherd. But you and I, if we call ourselves Christians, we are also called to shepherd others into a relationship with the shepherd. So we're kind of minor shepherds, right? Who are helping lead people into the flock where the big shepherd, God, can lead them. That's what we are called to do. So that means that you and I, right now, if you call yourself a Christian, we are to be feeding people, right? Spiritually and even physically, Comforting them, healing them, guiding them, protecting them. That is our job if we call ourselves Christians. Some of us may just have our family that we do it for. Some of us might have 5,000 person churches. Whatever the case may be, we are all called to do some shepherding to get people to the shepherd. What that means in our day and age is we call that discipleship. At this point in the Bible, not just the book of Matthew, the entire Bible, 
The way that we look at disciples is going to be dramatically different from here on out. The narrative of Jesus' followers is going to change big from this point, right? We're even going to see in the next chapter, it's going to be all about commissioning his followers. Jesus saw the needs of the people, the crowds, right? And he was going to equip his disciples to meet the needs of those people. That is still the point of Christianity today. That is still the point of the church today. That God is building up a group of people to meet the needs of the community. That doesn't mean just feed people. It doesn't mean just clothe people. It means teaching them the word of God, praying for them, counseling them, listening to them when they need to tell us something and get something off their chest, being there for them, inviting them in our homes, going into their homes. That is what we're called to do. That is still God's prime objective is to build up his church to meet the needs of the community. So what Jesus was doing was this. This is very important. He was mentoring and multiplying. See, Jesus could have came and just performed. Here's a bunch of miracles. Here's some forgiveness of sin over here. Here's some healing the sick over there. And then he could have went back up to heaven. But Jesus knew that he wanted to get the salvation message, the gospel to the entire world. So Jesus knew I can't do this by myself, right? He, when Jesus was on earth, he was in one place at one time, right? And so he knew that he couldn't cover the entire earth by himself. But Jesus knew if I, if I build up some disciples, and if they build up disciples, and if they build up disciples exponentially, eventually the world is going to get covered. And it goes on later in the Bible to say that once the world gets covered with the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ, it says this in the book of Revelation and in Matthew, that then Jesus will come back. But he knew he needed to make disciples. Jesus also acknowledged this, though, that a lot of people don't want to do it. A lot of people don't want to go through the work. Mostly for two reasons. They're either selfish or scared or both. And these are two things that Christians are never called to be, selfish and scared. Now, listen, we can be frightened sometimes of things, it's okay sometimes to have a momentary lapse of fear or being afraid. But we are not to live a life that is afraid. We are not to live a life that is fear. It's just not a mark of a Christian. We're to be, Jesus says, I'm gonna send you out like sheep among wolves. I'm gonna have you tread on serpents, right? I mean, like, that's pretty intense stuff. I'm gonna have you carry a cross. We cannot be selfish and we cannot be scared. It's just not what Christians are. So Jesus says something that is profound and quite honestly, very convicting. Jesus looked out over all these people and he said, there's this huge harvest. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, but the workers are few. There aren't a whole lot of people who want to go out into the mess. There's not a whole lot of people who want to sacrifice and give their time and their energy and their money and, and put their life on the line to go out and share the gospel. The workers are few. But let's just say, you're watching this right now and you're like, man, I have not been the worker I need to be. I want to be a worker. What do I do to be a shepherd? What do I do? The call of the church, and that means everyone that claims to be a Christian, the call of the church is this, to feed both spiritually and physically, right? We're to feed people the word of God and we're to feed people literal food. We're to comfort the broken and the hurt. We are to heal people. I know we can't heal them, but we pray for their healing and we counsel them. So it may not be a physical healing. It may be a mental healing or a spiritual healing. We pray for that. We guide people through the word of God, through the Bible, and we protect each other from evil by holding each other accountable. Feed, comfort, heal, counsel, guide, protect. That's what we are called to do all of you that call yourself a Christian. And again, that may just be for your family and a couple of people at work. It may be for 10,000 people of a church that you may lead. But all of us are called to do these things with the sheep, if you will, around us, okay? That's what we're called to do. That's what the workers do. Now, Jesus didn't see the crowds as a threat. 
What we tend to do a lot in Christianity is we are afraid of culture. We're afraid of non-believers. Christians have become so hyper-offended, right? Man, I heard the CEO of Home Depot did this. I am never shopping there again, right? Well, I heard that McDonald's did this. I will never eat a hamburger again. I remember when I was a kid, my, my grandfather, who I, I, I loved, he was a good man, but I remember I had He-Man toys, and I remember Christians were boycotting He-Man at that time. We're not going to let our kids play with He-Man. That guy is half cat, half human. Not going to do it. And so we, we sometimes isolate ourselves from the world. We're afraid of non-believers. We see them as a threat. We don't want our children around them. We don't want to be around them. We want to create this bubble. And that is not what the Bible recommends we do. It's not what the Bible tells us to do. That is being afraid. That goes back to a life of fear. So real workers do not isolate themselves from the world. They insulate themselves with the Holy Spirit. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're covered by the Holy Spirit. So real believers, real workers, real Christians can go into the darkness and the light that is within us, Jesus Christ, penetrates the darkness. Now, the problem is this. We either go to one or two extremes. A lot of Christians go out into the world and because they want to fit in with the world so bad, they compromise their biblical integrity. And that's, we cannot do that. We cannot compromise the word of God or what we believe. And then other people are so afraid of the world, they just never engage it. We must be insulated by the Holy Spirit, insulated, covered by the Holy Spirit, have the word of God in our heart. And if we do that, we can go out into the darkness and the darkness will not penetrate the light. The light will penetrate the darkness. We cannot be isolated. We have to be insulated. So if you want to be a worker for the kingdom, right? Because Jesus said the workers are few. There's this huge harvest of people. Let's just say for argument's sake that every, every single person that claims to be a Christian is a, a full-blown, Bible-believing, solid Christian. There'd be about two billion on planet Earth, okay? Now, we're not all good, Bible-believing, following Jesus the way we should people, but let's just say for argument's sake, two billion on planet Earth. There's about eight billion people on planet Earth. Guys, that's only a quarter. That's not that good. So let's just say for argument's sake that all two billion of us are doing what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus would say, well, 75% of the world's population doesn't know me. What are you doing? There's a big harvest, but the workers are few. I would say the numbers are actually a lot worse than that. Let's say half of all Christians are doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's 1 billion people, and we have another 7 billion to reach. So what do we do? What do we do? This is so simple, but this is the most important slide that I'll show you, okay? And this is for people that claim to be Christians. The first one is this, you have to love people. We say that as Christians, we're like, yes, love God, love people, right? I got it tattooed on the inside of my arm. That's all I do. Unless they're a Democrat, then I really hate them. Unless they're a crazy right-wing nut on Fox News, I hate them. Unless they're a different color than me, right? I hate them. Unless they're a Buddhist or a, a radical Muslim, I hate them. And that's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, pray for people that persecute you. Love those that hate you. If they steal your shoes, offer them your shirt. Jesus says some radical things. We don't have an option of who we love and don't love. We are called to love all people. Why? Because Jesus does. Do you love people? Honestly, right now, if I were to honestly ask you, and if you were to honestly answer, do you love people? I think we love some people. I think we love people that we get along with. Do we love humanity? Do we want what's best? Do we want all people to know Jesus Christ and to be saved for eternity? Now, if we truly love people, we have to go out into the world and communicate and show the love to people. But you can't do that if you don't know your own faith. The reason why so many of us fail at evangelism, going out and talking to other people and sharing the gospel, is we don't even know the gospel. You know what one of my greatest fears of, of this whole isolation thing that we're in right now? And we're, we're making plans to combat this if anything ever happens like this again. What if the internet was gone right now and you couldn't look up my sermon or anyone else's sermons right now? All you dads at home right now, are you prepared to teach the word of God to your children? 
All you moms out there, are you ready to teach the word of God to your children? All you single college students out there, do you pick up the word of God? Do you own a copy of the word of God? Do you read it the way you should? Are you able to study it and learn good theology? Are you equipped? Do you know your faith? So not only do you have to love people, if we're gonna go out and be the workers, we better know some of the Bible. We better be reading that thing a little bit. We better have some answers for people when they ask questions. Bible even says that. I think Peter says that. You better have an answer when people ask. Does that mean we're gonna know everything? Of course not. But we better at least know the gospel. We better at least know a little bit about the book of Matthew, the book of Romans. We better know a little bit about Ephesians and Galatians. We need to know those things. So first is love people. Second is we need to know our faith. Third is we have to live our faith, which means how you talk to people matters. How you do business matters. How you treat your wife or your husband matters. How you raise your kids matter. How you talk to people at restaurants, how you tip matters. How we go out and live matters. We are to not only love people, know our word, we are to go out and live what the Bible tells us to do to treat others as we would like to be treated. We are to live our faith. Now, this is where most people stop. They say, man, you're just, you gotta go out there and live it. Yes, you also have to speak it. The Bible says that people are not going to hear the gospel unless the gospel is spoken. People are not going to know or come to a saving faith in Jesus unless we tell them, we share with them the good news. So whenever I hear people say, well, I just live it. That's great that you live it. You also need to say it. Whenever someone comes up to you, well, why do you live the way you live? This is why I live the way I live. This is what Jesus has done in my life. It says in the book of Revelation that it's by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb that the devil is overcome, that we have to speak what God has done for us. We have to speak the truth. We have to tell people, what is the blood of the lamb? You have to explain that. We have to learn to communicate people where they are. Don't speak this weird Christianese that non-believers don't know. Go out and learn how to talk to people on their level, where they're at, but share the truth with them. And then the last thing is this. Not only go out and love people and know our faith and live our faith and speak our faith, we have to intentionally gather some people, meet with them on a regular basis, mentor them, walk with them, it's called discipleship. Disciple them and make multiplication, right? To make more believers that will go out and make more believers. Disciples that make disciples. That's what we have to start doing. We have a lot of big churches, but I don't know if we have a lot of disciples. We have a lot of people that watch online, but I don't know how many disciples we have. How many people do we have going out, rounding up three or five people, sharing with them the truth, walking with them, exchanging phone numbers and holding each other accountable and iron sharpening iron and making more disciples. Jesus never told us to go out and build big buildings and make huge TV productions and have cool pastors that do all this stuff. And Jesus never told us to do that. He said in Matthew 28, go out and make disciples, baptize and teach. Teach, baptize, make disciples. Make more followers of me. The great commission of Jesus Christ is to make more followers of Jesus that will also go out and make more followers of Jesus. Are we doing that? Because the people doing that, according to Jesus' own words, are few. There's not a lot doing that. Even today, it's a problem. So listen, if you're watching this right now, and you are living a life right now that doesn't have comfort, doesn't have healing, doesn't have direction, doesn't have protection, any of those things. What that means is you need a shepherd. You need, of course, the shepherd, God, and you might need some good people in your life that can just kind of walk with you. If you're watching this right now and you're not a believer, please get a hold of us. Info at experiencecc.com. Until we can start meeting together in here again, Send us an email. We'll call you. We'll connect with you. Maybe we'll go out to a big open field and stand 10 feet away from each other. Whatever we got to do, get a hold of us, and we would love to talk with you. We don't have every answer, but we can do our best to answer as many questions as you have. Info at experiencecc.com. 
If you are in this room and you need prayer for anything, please get a hold of us. You can get a hold of Muhammad at Muhammad at experiencecc.com or again, just info at experiencecc.com. Prayer request, we will get to it. We will pray with you. We will help you, okay? The last thing is this. I have communion with me and I don't know if you guys do this with me every week, but it's been really nice that I've gotten to do communion because I typically don't get to. What we're gonna do is we take communion today is I want you to think about this. Jesus came, and what this communion represents, right, is his body and blood that he shed for us. He came and gave his life for us. So our sins could be forgiven, so we could be healed mentally, spiritually, eventually, all of us physically. And when he broke the bread, the first communion, and when he did this, he did it with his disciples with people that he was leading up, he was mentoring, he was multiplying, he was walking life with them so they could go out and walk life with other people and on and on it goes and more people get to know the good shepherd, right? As you and I take communion together today, I want you to really think about this. Who are you walking with? Are you discipling? Would you consider yourself a worker in the field? And if not, I don't wanna beat you up about it, but it's time to get to work. Jesus said, the workers are few. I hope you hear this today and say, man, I gotta start loving people. I gotta start living my faith. I gotta start speaking my faith. I need to know my faith. I need to pull some people under my wing. Maybe I need to be under the wing of someone else. We need to get to work, guys, because there is a lot of hurting, broken, lost people. Father, Lord, we love you, God. Lord, we take this communion today, Lord, just remembering how good you've been to us, God. I take this bread, Lord, right now as a remembrance of your body that was broken for us. Take this wine, Lord God, this juice as a remembrance of your blood that was shed for us. Lord, Father, let us be workers in the field. Let us, God, open up our eyes for the harvest that's in front of us. For so many people that have broken marriages and insecurities and they're so confused, there's so much depression and fear and anxiety and everything else. God, please help us. Please convict us, Lord, to go out and to be the light. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, we, we pray, Lord, that sooner rather than later we can meet together again and worship together and break open the word again together. Father, we love you. We thank you, God. Keep your hand on everyone who's listening to this right now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. See you soon.